welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm Director of ECFR and I am very pleased to announce a wonderful special podcast from ECFR where we are going to be talking about the future. Not the long-term future as we did in an earlier podcast, but the near future. What can we expect from 2016? And to chew through that particular topic, I'm delighted to welcome ECFR's new research director, Jeremy Shapiro, who has just joined ECFR. It's his second day in the office. He is... A, an American citizen. He has been uh, a fellow at the Brookings Institution recently, um, has also worked in the State Department where he was leading on uh, Syria in the policy planning staff, but also worked on European issues and transatlantic issues for a long time. And uh, is also author of a number of books, including a fascinating joint book on the Iraq war with uh, Phil Gordon uh, called Allies. Um, so Jeremy and I have been talking to our colleagues at ECFR and trying to work out what people should be expecting in the next year in 2016. And we tried to come up with 13 trends to, to look out for. So we're going to go through these 13 trends. We're going to take them half of them each and try and think about some of the maybe unexpected things that the new year has in store for ourselves. So Jeremy, why don't you kick us off? What's the first trend that you want to talk about? Uh, thanks, Mark, and thanks for having me, and you know, thanks for the job. It's my <laughs> second day on the job, and I feel as if I uh, already know what the future is going to look like, so I think it's going very well, and uh, I would like a raise and a promotion. Um, uh, I think that the, you know, this, this exercise of, of uh, predicting the next year is a fool's one um, because you know, we're always wrong. So we promise that next year's podcast will be describing why, which and why of the various predictions that we're going to make today were wrong. But I think it's a useful exercise because it helps us to, it, it pins us down and it forces us to say specifically what we think we're going to see in the next year and who knows, we might be right. Um, so uh, the first trend I think that's worth looking at is the potential and the in fact growing actuality of a proxy war between Russia and the United States in, in Syria. I think that one of the sort of underreported stories is the scale of the proxy conflict between the two old rivals um, in Syria. Um, you know, it's very popular uh, for both sides to say that they're not fighting a proxy war. Uh, it's very popular for them to be talking about getting together on a political consensus. But the fact of the matter is, on the ground right now, uh, rebels with U.S.-made weapons are firing on um, both the Syrian army, which is immediately supported by the Russians, and on the Russians themselves. Uh, and this makes uh, the, the danger of escalation uh, or of an incident that causes escalation, I think, very high and even likely in the next year. So the second trend, which I like to talk about, is of uh, Britain re-entering Europe. The big story in the British papers at the moment is about the pressure on David Cameron around the, the referendum, which we're going to be having probably sometime in 2016, almost certainly uh, either in June or in September, about British membership of the European Union. And 
this British psychodrama about our membership of the EU has divided the Conservative Party for a very long period of time. And that's one of the reasons why all British governments have had one hand tied behind their back. And I'm going to stick my neck out and predict both that there will be a decent majority of people voting to stay in the European Union. But secondly, and most importantly, that once that's happened, I think we will see uh, Britain maybe ceasing to marginalise itself in the way it has at the moment and maybe talking about some of the same topics that the rest of the European Union is talking about, maybe even contributing some European leadership. And one of the reasons that I'm confident in saying that is that even as part of the process of renegotiation, we're seeing the government trying to show that it, it can be useful on some of these bigger questions. So I think that lying behind the recent decision to take part in the coalition against ISIS, um, the uh, volunteering to give money to, to Turkey to help with the refugee crisis was an attempt by David Cameron to show his European allies that it was worth having Britain in the club and trying to persuade them to be helpful to him in the renegotiations. Hopefully there'll be even more of that once uh, the referendum's out of the way. So what's your third, what's the third trend, Jeremy? Um, well, uh, I think what the, the next trend is that as Britain, um, as Britain re-enters Europe, we're going to see Poland um, departing. Uh, the uh, Poland, under the under the previous civic platform government, has been one of the most sort of stalwart uh, and effective pro-European uh, governments in a difficult time. Uh, the but now Poland is uh, has a new government, which is uh, decidedly uh, Eurosceptic, to put it mildly, and it, and the country in general is crippled by uh, domestic tensions and really isolated from the U from the European Union mainstream by uh, the law and justice uh, party by the law, by the ruling law and justice party. Um, I think we saw even uh, uh, we've seen already a constitutional crisis in Poland over this. We've seen uh, oddly um, what one NATO official called the first time that a, a, a NATO government has actually attacked a NATO facility when the uh, when the Polish government raided a NATO facility to uh, to inspire them to install a Polish head. Um, and I think we're seeing a, an increasing amount of uh, Eurosceptic rhetoric uh, and even hostility coming from the new Polish government, which is going to uh, which is going to tell over the next year. So the fourth trend, which I'd like to talk about, is the probably the least surprising one, which is hardening of attitudes uh, to refugees as the crisis continues. I think that. There is a growing sense in European countries that the authorities have lost the ability to control their borders and the flow of people into Europe. And this is leading to a politics of fear in more and more places and a sense that the things that countries... Um, care the most about are being threatened um, in Germany the big fear apart from the the unmanageability of the numbers of people that are coming in is the effect on the balanced budget people are very worried about um, uh, the costs of these refugees which 
is one of the, the things which making the prices much worse because local authorities don't want to spend any money on it in order to stop the um, their, their uh, budgets from not being balanced and therefore that creates more chaos. In France, the worry is about uh, both security but also about the secular state. And in Poland, uh, one of the things that helped uh, the government that you just mentioned get elected was the fear of the Islamization of Europe. The anti-Muslim backlash came long before a single Muslim was uh, was invited into into Poland. Uh, the next trend is um, what we're calling the breakdown of the European consensus over Russia. Um, what we saw in the last uh, several days was uh, was rumblings at the at the last EU Council meeting uh, of the difficulty of uh, renewing uh, the sanctions against Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. Uh, th th this has to be done every six months, and I think that there is a in increasing view that it's going to be more and more difficult in uh, either in the next Council meeting or the one after that. To, to hold the European consensus on renewing these sanctions. Uh, there is a, a very old uh, rift within the European Union on this uh, question. The, uh, the eastern countries, um, the Baltic states and the Visegrad Four are uh, by and large very much uh, in, in favor of, of renewing the sanctions. Um, but a lot of the southern European countries led, particularly in the last council meeting by Italy, view this as, uh, as an imposition on their economy at a very difficult time and without, re without a great uh, purpose. And they feel as if they are suffering for the foreign policy needs of others. Uh, and this is creating a lot of uh, discontent within the European Council. They managed to paper that over uh, at the recent meeting, but I think that the Italians in particular were laying down a marker that they're not going to continue to accept this forever. So this is going to be, I think, with each six-month period, a more difficult thing to renew. So the sixth trend is also not a new one, but it's the idea of the European mainstream canutes, that's what we're calling it, that in every single country, the mainstream parties are having to club together to keep the insurgents and the populists out of power. We saw it most recently in Spain after the elections, but before that, um, the National Front in France that was kept out by a quirk of uh, electoral arithmetic. Um, and increasingly, uh, the more the mainstream parties do that, the more powerful the populists are going to become until eventually one has to fear that they will uh, overwhelm the, the mainstreams. Though maybe once they overwhelm them, they'll be forced to deal with the same governing realities that the mainstream parties do and look much more mainstream, as Syriza does in, in Greece. The next trend is an increasingly worrying one. It's the, um, what we call the nihilistic trend in uh, extremist Islam. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the notion that comes from the strategy that ISIS has so successfully presented in, the, um, uh, in Iraq and Syria, which is, this, which is the elevation of violence uh, as a strategy over the elevation of, uh, over the effort to secure popular support. Uh, Al-Qaeda as a, as a, um, was certainly a terrorist group and was certainly interested in using violence for political purposes, even violence against civilians, but actually in a way which is underappreciated, it was very worried about the opinion of its core audience, particularly Muslim audiences. And 
uh, modified and limited its violence in order to remain attractive to that to that core audience. And there is there is a lot of um, internal debate within the uh, extremist movement between Al Qaeda and what eventually became ISIS about the uh, the propriety and the advisability of the sort of all-out violence uh, that ISIS is now elevating. And uh, what, what ISIS has proven in the last couple of years is that it doesn't really matter what those people think, that the violence is directed not at securing popular support, but at securing, uh, but at recruiting uh, the young men who love that level of violence and who are actually attracted to it. And they've been able to attract a lot of followers. They're extremely unpopular uh, in the Middle East, in every Middle Eastern country. As a matter of fact, uh, a recent poll found that in Lebanon, ISIS has a 100% disapproval rating, which is really impressive. Um, but it's not clear that this matters and what I th uh, because they have been able, through this violence and through the success that it has generated, to attract a lot of, uh, of recruits, and that's made them ever stronger. And I think that even if ISIS uh, is put on its back foot by the international coalition against it, the lesson of, the, uh, of this extreme violence has already been learned by other terrorist groups, some of whom call themselves affiliates of ISIS, some of whom don't. But they will all take up this strategy as in, instead of the old al-Qaeda strategy. So the eighth trend is about Germany. Uh, frequent topic of ECFR podcasts and uh, not just because Jeremy's here we're predicting that Germany's going to become the new United States and what we mean by that is that as Germany becomes more and more overwhelmed by the refugee crisis and feels more and more political pressure on itself we will see Germany behaving in a more unilateral and uh, uh, assertive uh, way flexing its economic and diplomatic muscles to assemble coalitions of the less and less willing within the European Union to take refugees to support other German policy initiatives and I think we're already seeing how Germany's been willing to instrumentalize the uh, European budget the attitude towards uh, fiscal uh, rules um, as well as a whole series of bilateral uh, levers that it has on, on, on other countries to get them to, to, um, to play ball and to support Germany in its hour of need. And when I go to Berlin, I, I sense increasing uh, impatience and frustration uh, with other member states, which is kind of bubbling over into a, a much less uh, soft brand of German diplomacy towards European partners. So uh, as Germany becomes like the U.S., uh, the next trend is that the U.S. will become more like Germany. After all, there's really only room for one U.S. in, in international politics. But really what we mean by this is that the, America's foreign policy will become more and more defined by its own um, direct interest and its, go, and its move away from being a sort of global policeman, a global watchdog, which, uh, which had popular support at home for supporting public goods abroad is, is, going to, uh, is going to start to fade away. And I think we've seen a really striking demonstration of, the, uh, of, the increasing, um, uh, the, 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 of this attitude in the American presidential campaign. 
where, uh, particularly on the Republican side, uh, there's been very little internationalism. Uh, there has been a, basically a view that the United States has uh, contributed too much to the world, uh, that it's not getting a good deal from the world, uh, that it needs to negotiate better than the, with the world, and that, it, uh, and that it needs to look more to its own interests, to protecting its own shores, to uh, promoting its own uh, economic interests, than to uh, the sort of liberal internationalism which, ha which has so defined U.S. foreign policy since the Second World War. So our tenth trend is what we're calling the rise and rise of geoeconomics. And this is basically about the war weariness of countries around the world who increasingly want to fight each other but they don't want to do it by putting troops on the ground and they don't want to get caught into world wars and have nuclear confrontations so what they're turning to as a weapon of first resort are different parts of the international system that binds us together using sanctions economic boycotts cyber attacks building international organizations and trading arrangements like the transatlantic trade and investment partnership or the BRICS development bank or the asia Inve infrastructure and investment bank as a way of uh, competing with each other and most worryingly uh, they're even using the movement of people. We saw how Turkey used the threat of sending uh, refugees across its borders to change the balance of power between it and the European Union uh, in very recent uh, weeks. Um, we're calling this the connectivity wars and have just launched a, a massive, well, we're about to launch a big collection of essays which tries to go into all of the different details of these different types of, uh, of political, geopolitical contests and to see who the, the runners and riders in this new world are going to be. The next trend is uh, an exception to the last one, and that is uh, Russia. Uh, Russia does use geoeconomic tools. It's imposed a lot of sanctions on Ukraine and most recently on uh, Turkey in response to various political disputes. But in fact, uh, Russia can't really compete in this realm. It's, uh, it has an economy which is just about the size of Australia's, a country which is about a sixth of its size, uh, and it, it doesn't really have the attractive power or the economy to compete in the geoeconomic realm. Uh, it, but Russia wants to be a great power, uh, and so Russia has increasingly turned to a realm in which it's stronger, the military realm. And Russia, unlike uh, unlike almost every other country in the world, is, is moving more toward uh, military tools. It has invaded uh, Crimea and invaded, um, it's invaded Ukraine, including Crimea and Eastern Ukraine over the last couple of years. It had a military intervention um, in Syria. Uh, and uh, for Russia, this is a way of competing and of exercising influence uh, in an era in which it's, it's particular comparative advantage, the military tool is being increasingly deprecated. Uh, this is a process which probably won't do Russia well in the long term. It goes against the tide of history. Um, but uh, over the next year, particularly, Russia's military modernization will continue and Russia could continue to use this military tool. I think we may particularly see Russia move into a realm where it's even more competitive, where it will use uh, the 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 nuclear tool, or at least threaten to use the nuclear tool. It's been developing in recent months and years 
a, a tactical nuclear doctrine which emphasizes that maybe tactical nuclear weapons are usable in a political and military conflict. And this has begun, I think, quite reasonably uh, to spook a lot of people in the West. And we may see more of this in the next year. So the, the 12th trend uh, is one to do with a, a power that, unlike Russia, is in the first rank of uh, economic powers, and that's China. And the Chinese economy has been seen as one of the great sources of opportunity in recent years. It's driven a huge amount of global growth. Uh, but last year, China was a source of economic dislocation and chaos in uh, many parts of the world. And uh, the fear of a hard landing of the Chinese economy uh, spooked uh, stock markets after the summer when uh, the country was seen to trip up in a few different ways. And the economic elite, which uh, is so widely admired, was seen not to have a grip on the situation. But we're going to stick our necks out on this uh, topic and argue that there won't be a hard landing for the Chinese economy in 2016. It's certainly a country facing uh, a huge number of, of challenges as it tries to reorientate its economy from investment-led and export-led growth and to move up the, the value chain. And whenever I go to Beijing, I noticed how, I noticed how spooked uh, Chinese economists are by the so-called middle-income trap. But we don't think that the Chinese economy is going to come crashing down uh, in the next 12 months. The last trend is, uh, is about Turkey and Turkey's return to the West. The refugee crisis has made Erdogan um, and Turkey more indispensable to Europe and the uh, AK Party's um, surprise re-election or uh, surprise uh, absolute majority in the, in the November election has certainly strengthened um, uh, Erdogan domestically. But um, more broadly speaking, Turkey's foreign policy is in a complete mess. Um, their, their grand strategy in the wider Middle East has come to nothing. They've isolated themselves from all of their uh, Middle Eastern partners. Um, they have alienated themselves from Russia with the shootdown of the Russian jet. Uh, and so increasingly, Turkey needs the West. And we predict that Turkey is going to have to uh, turn back to the West in the next year and that Turkey will need Europe and the West as much as Europe needs it. Uh, and I think that the, the result of this will be that the West will have increasing leverage with Turkey if it chooses to use it, particularly to push Turkey toward uh, renewing the Kurdish peace process and toward accepting uh, greater autonomy for the Kurds in Syria. So those are 13 things to look out for in 2016. Please uh, record it on your uh, hard drives. Uh, come back in 12 months time. Tell us if we were uh, wrong. Hold us to account because accountability uh, will be one of the big uh, trends for ECFR in the next year, we hope. Oh, you didn't tell me about that in the hiring process. <laughs> And uh, do also uh, don't, but don't wait 12 months. Write to us, uh, write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu and tell me what your predictions for 2016 are going to be and where you think we got it wrong, where we might have overrated the pudding, where we might have underrated the, pud the pudding. Um, but before we go, we have one last gift um, to you before the end of this year, which is our bookshelf segment. Jeremy, what's on your bookshelf? Uh, 
Well, Mark, as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, I've just moved to London in the last few days, in fact, and I'm looking for a place to live. So I've picked up a book by a former uh, ECFR fellow, uh, Ben Judah, called uh, This is London. And what he does is take a foreign correspondence view of his own home city, London, and he goes on uh, uh, to look at the very diverse nature of uh, London and looks at the various immigrant communities and seeks to understand London in the way that a foreign correspondent would understand such a large, uh, diverse, and confusing city. I'm hoping this will give me some sense of um, where I should live and what, what London is really like, uh, but we'll see. So you'll come back in 12 months and tell us where you decided to settle. Where are the American, what's the American ghetto in London? Is, is that uh, one? Uh, I don't know. I haven't. I have actually. I haven't gotten too far into the book, and there, I don't think there's an American section. I didn't see that in the table of contents. But uh, if there is, I will definitely be living there next year. So my own book's also one that I haven't had a chance to read yet. But uh, in fact, is one that we should have read before we did this session because it's uh, about the art of forecasting. It's called Super Forecasting: The Art and Science of Prediction by Philip Tetlock and Dan Gardner and. Philip Tetlock is a professor at Wharton who is one of the world's super forecasters. He made a, a big study uh, which showed that the average expert was only slightly better at predicting the future than a layperson using random guesswork. But then he went on to identify apparently a million, uh, a, a group of people who are uh, spectacularly good at predicting the future and has found ordinary people from former ballroom dancers to retired computer programmers who apparently have uh, this kind of ability to to uh, to be the oracles of uh, of the modern world and uh, this book is an attempt to, to look at how uh, what tricks they use and to, to help um, us understand the, the future so if we do read it over the next year maybe our predictions for 2017 will be even better than those that we've just given you at the moment so that brings this podcast to an end we have put links up to all of the publications that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts from Jeremy Shapiro and myself Mark Leonard it's goodbye for now the editor of ECFR's podcast is Katarina Botel-Azzinaro and our researcher is Ulrike Franke. Mm-hmm.